In a video series called Faith Has Its Reasons, Rebecca Pippert tells a story from Harvard University psychology class that she had attended. She reported that the professor wanted the class members to be honest and open about some of their issues, and so he divided the class up into groups. Each group shared about what was going on personally with themselves, and she reports that uh, in her class, they were amazingly honest. Uh, one shared her depression, another of uh, his frustration with one of his parents, another girlfriend troubles. It was honest, it was open, it was real. Shortly after that, that same day, Becca went across town to a Christian Bible study. And it was filled, she said, with happy talk. Everything was wonderful with everyone. There were no problems because authenticity was not practiced and problems were not allowed. She talked about the contrast being amazing. One group had all the problems but no answers. The other had all the answers but no problems. Christ said he didn't come to help those who are well, but he came to help those who are sick. That implies that he helps those who are humble, who can admit their need. That's not always the case in the Christian community. It's one thing, however, that I appreciate here about our fellowship. I love our life group. I love what happened in men's community. There is authenticity there. There's honest and vulnerable talk about personal issues, and it's one of the reasons that I love Christ Community Church. Peter is starting a section in this letter that is essentially a response to what he's written thus far. You might remember he's talked a lot of theology. He's talked a lot about our position in Christ and who we are despite having all this persecution. And so now he's saying, because all of this is true, here are some of the things that I want you to practice to put into action. One thing persecution does is that it strips off the veneer, does it not? It takes away some of the fakeness in the Christian life. I've often said when talking about whether a kid should go to a Christian college or not, I mean, it's up to each individual. But one thing about a Christian college is that you can hide you can, uh, you can get in groups that are fairly mediocre in terms of their Christian walk. You go to a secular university, you're going to sink or swim, right? Because you know there's going to be opposition. And here we see in 1 Peter that Peter is cutting it straight with his readers in terms of the application. It's honest, it's real, and I hope that you appreciate it. Let's all stand as we take a look at the first section. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Peter 
is saying beloved. He's reminding that they are loved by God and they are loved by Peter himself. And by urging them, he's communicating the idea, I am begging you. Because of their station in life, he wants them to abstain from wanton pleasures of the flesh. And let me just say about the flesh that it's not referring to just any desire, but wanton desires. It's okay to want to eat. What's not okay is to sit for 18 hours straight and just never get up from the table and continually eat. The desire to eat is okay. The desire to gorge yourself, that's another thing, all right? So this is the wanton desire, the unhindered kind of desires. This is what he's talking about. But he says, let us notice that we are aliens or sojourners. It means that we live in a place that is not our home. You could say it this way. We are diplomats here on earth representing heaven. We are foreigners. We understand the laws of heaven and we understand that there are laws of earth but the laws of heaven are to remain supreme. The worldview and perspective of heaven is different than the worldview and perspective of most on the earth. The morality of those on the earth is different than the principles that dictate the morality of those in heaven. The writer of Hebrews, after naming exploits of the faith from Old Testament saints, says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Sojourners and exiles speak to our temporary state here upon the earth, that we are not permanent residents. We are on the way to a country that is not of the earth. Our stay is short-lived. If this is the case, then it would seem we are not to put all of our eggs into this one basket upon the earth. Our firm roots are to be with our eternal home. God, on multiple times, said of his people in the Old Testament, we are strangers and sojourners. Sometimes this truth is realized in stark reality. When U.S. District Judge Joan Lefkow came home to her suburban Chicago residence on February 28, 2005, she found her mother and her husband murdered. 
The killer was a man whom she ruled against in court. She later told the Chicago Tribune, as a sojourner on this earth, I do not feel terribly entitled. I do believe the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. It's your responsibility to accept the adversity as well as you accept the abundance, end quote. Wow, that's hardcore. The idea is that we are to understand our transient state and citizenship in heaven, and that is to lead to a loosening of our grip on things of the earth. It doesn't always happen that way. Remember what you were like when you got a new car, okay, and you didn't want to hurt it at all and the way you polished it? I remember one uh, years ago, I got a newer car, parked it in the garage, and one of the kids had their bike, like the first week I had it, that was in the garage, and they're pushing on the bike to come out of the garage, and they take the handlebar and just scrapes alongside of the car. I locked them in the closet for a week. <laughs> I got upset, you know, what were they, nine, ten? Things like that happen, I think, for us to loosen our grip, to realize there's something in my house more important than this thing, and that is the kids, right? Our time on earth is short. Our home is heaven. That's an urge we need to obey, right? Sheldon Van Alken was a student of the English professor and Christian apologist C.S. Lewis in the early 1950s. He recounts in his book, A Severe Mercy, the story of his last meeting with Lewis when Van Alken was leaving Oxford to come to the United States. And over one final lunch together at a pub, can you imagine sitting at a pub with C.S. Lewis? Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> they had spent time wondering aloud about what life would be like in heaven. When they'd finished eating, they stood outside the pub, talked for a few more minutes. And just before parting, Lewis said to Van Alken, I shan't say goodbye. We'll meet again. The great apologist had run off through the traffic to cross the street while Van Alken watched his friend walk away. And when Lewis got to the other side of the street, he turned around thinking that his friend was still looking at him, and indeed he was. And with a grin on his face, Lewis shouted over the roar of the cars, Besides, Christians never say goodbye. That's the thought. Our parting with other believers is only temporary, right? So goodbyes are unnecessary. I like that he applied it even at that level. It says we're to abstain from pleasures or passions of the flesh because of this transitory nature upon the earth, because we're foreigners, because our citizenship is in heaven. Now, there are some passages in which flesh means sexual desires, but I think here in Peter, it's a broader use of the term. It's anything that steers us away from Christ and points us to self-dependence 
on self, to be redundant. Is this not a needed rebuke for our culture? And not that we're to sit around rebuking people, but we know our culture doesn't get this. Why? Because they preach obeying the passion. They idolize the inward passion. The identity is fused with the passion. They're they're giving everyone a right to indulge. Let us notice that since God is telling us to abstain, that means, I think, that in the power of Christ, we're to do so. Multiple times, we learn that we're to abstain from passions of the flesh, I believe that God wrote this book. I believe that God is omniscient. I believe this book is inspired. So I believe when he says that, it's true. That because Christ is in us and we are in Christ, we have the ability to say no to the passion. And I know that some are in bondage right now that they don't believe that. But that is deception. We can have freedom in Christ in any situation. Listen to what Paul said. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. There, he's more pointed. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. What? Control your body, control your passions, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know. The culture says, let it rip. The Christian says, this is in moderation. And certainly within sexual passions, within the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, Whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So if you don't like this, the argument is not with me. God's the one who made the rules. I got to figure with him being omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign, he knows better than I do. And he's saying, abstain from fleshly lusts. And again, That doesn't just mean sexual passions. It means a whole host of things. Paul also said in Galatians, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't believe he's talking about heaven there. I believe he's saying you're not going to receive any rewards in heaven. That's for another discussion, but let me just say that. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality deal with a self-centered approach to sexual relationships. Idolatry and sorcery deal with a self-seeking relationship with a higher power. Drunkenness, orgies, that deals with a self-centered relationship over our own self. We have to discipline even ourself. And then he speaks of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. That speaks of 
relating to humans in a self-centered way. And he's saying, when you do these things unhindered without, or any limiter, I should say, there is what? There's destruction. All of these items of the flesh and self-inducement, it speaks to having the goal of, you know, comfort, self-protection, self-gratification, to meet our needs our way instead of looking to Christ. We're talking about people who walk through life with nary a thought about God, funneling everything primarily through the prism of self. William Temple said that the Bible, what the Bible means by sin, and he just said it is self-centeredness, basically. In his book, Christianity and the Social Order, he says, I'm the center of the world I see, and where the horizon is depends on where I stand. Education may make my self-centeredness less disastrous by broadening my horizon of vision. It's like a man climbing a tower to see further in terms of physical vision while remaining himself the center and the standard of reference. I am the center of the world I see. This description is synonymous with operating in the flesh. Luther talks about a man being curved in on himself. Malcolm Muggeridge talks about the dark little dungeon of his own ego. And in a twist of self-centeredness, it can keep us imprisoned. See, our flesh always wants moi to be first. My biggest struggle as a pastor is not problem people in the church. It's me. It's dealing with my own pride and ego and lusts and passions. D.L. Moody said the same thing. He said the biggest problem he has in ministry is D.L. Moody. God's order is that we are to love him with all our might and we're to put others before ourselves. Jesus said it succinctly. I don't like he said it this way because it's just too pointed. He said we're to die to self. There's a death that has to take place to our self-centeredness. One of the reasons we're called to do these things is because it wages against our soul. The soul refers to the non-physical, essential part of a person. The idea is that we wreak havoc on ourselves when the flesh runs unabated. We become spiritually weak. It reminds me of David in Psalm 32, where he talks about his bones wasting away, hurting. His strength goes away like through the fever heat of summer. Why? because he had unconfessed sin in his life that wasn't addressed, because he'd let his flesh run. And his strength was gone, his spiritual strength. By waging war, it means there's an assault on our soul by our flesh against our own spiritual vitality and growth. And so consistently satisfying these wanton desires without looking through the filter of God's will, right? 
It saps our strength. It limits our maturity. And then it also affects our relationships. And I think even our community. Peter is encouraging us, as we heard from our men's community, and as I talk to you, that we are to be honest and open with one another. And when we deal with these fleshly passions, one of the things that was said yesterday, we have to have a bigger yes than what we're saying no to. We say yes to our growth, our maturity, and our spiritual health to say no to our fleshly passion. And so we have a strategy. It has to be more than just, you know, saying no. So we have to be aware of the damage that it causes. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources reports that more than 17,000 deer die each year after being struck by motorists on state highways. 17,000. According to Paul Shelton, state wildlife director, the peak season for road kills is the late fall. Why? Because the bucks are in rut in November. He says they're concentrating almost exclusively on reproductive activities. Don't know what that is, ask your parents. He said, and they're a lot less wary than they normally would be. I would suggest deer aren't the only ones destroyed by a preoccupation with sex. Now remember, the term that Peter uses means far more than just sexual passions. It could also mean anger gone awry. Philip Yancey tells of a friend whose marriage had gone through tough times, and one night, George's friend passed a breaking point, and he exploded. He pounded the table and the floor, and he screamed to his wife, I hate you. I don't want to take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Several months later, he woke up in the middle of the night and heard strange sounds coming from the room where his two-year-old slept. He went down the hall, stood outside his son's door, and shivers ran up his spine. In a soft voice, the two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection the climactic argument between his mother and father. He said, I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. At that moment, George realized the awful way that he had passed on his pain and anger and unforgiveness to his little boy. And right about now, I know just about every parent here is feeling guilty and bad. And that is not my goal. But it's to realize that we cannot let these outbursts of anger go without there being consequences. Listen, there's great hope and healing in these things. I want you to hear me say this, okay? All right? We've experienced tough times. We've said words, Janet and I, that we regretted, but we apologize to the kids. We confess the sin to the kids. And I have found that our children have been the most forgiving bunch when parents will humble 
themselves. Just don't let there be a long time in between the act and the confession, right? I'm trying to cut down on the confessions in the terms of the anger outbursts, right? Where those are needed. But it can still happen. Be quick to respond. Unlike David in Psalm 32, where he had to experience these consequences getting worse and worse until he broke. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Another reason for not following our passions, besides the fact that our lives are transient, we have a citizenship in heaven, is that our lives can have a positive impact on those who do not know Christ. Now, Gentiles is sometimes used of non-Jews in the Bible, but here it's used of anyone outside of Christ. Now, let's first say this. We are not trying to win public opinion. We are not trying to be respected in the media. Christians who do this I think are foolish. The passage clearly states that you will be spoken against. You know, the first century Christian had plenty of bad press. Stories circulated that Christians engaged in incest and even cannibalism at their church meetings. You know, because you're to express love between brother and sister have a holy kiss, eat the body and blood of Christ. Even Tacitus, who was responsible as a humanist um, historian, commented that Christians were loathed for their vices. The church was under immense scrutiny and criticism. Rumors and false accusations abounded. Christians were accused of being disloyal to the state or Caesar. They were accused of purposely hurting the business enterprises of the city and of being godless people because they did not worship idols. And Peter advised them not to defend themselves or to argue against their accusers. Instead, they are to take a positive approach and demonstrate a different quality of life that non-believers are going to observe. Our behavior should be so positive over the long haul that it's going to dismantle the negative accusations. And so he proposes living a life so simply pure and exemplary that people are going to recognize what I was saying was just a false accusation. And he hopes that this will end up glorifying God when some of these people actually believe the gospel and come to Christ. The passage says when God visits, non-believers will glorify God. What's that referring to? Well, some think it's the day of judgment when people are, you know, forced to see that God was right, the people of God were right, at least on some things, right? Others think it means that when the unbeliever is visited by God with his grace and matches that with the good works of believers around them, it creates a powerful combination to witness of the power of Christ. The verb for glorify occurs 
61 times in the New Testament, but it's never used of unbelievers who are forced unwillingly to admit that God or his people have been in the right. So I happen to think it means people coming to Christ. God's grace being applied to the heart of the non-believer. So Peter reminds us that the lives of the converts will in turn glorify God. In the summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met in a council at Buffalo Creek, New York. To hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. After the sermon, a response was given by Red Jacket, one of the leading chiefs. Among other things, the chief said this, Brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the Great Spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree, as you can all read the book? Brother, we are told that you've been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We are acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest, and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again of what you have said, end quote. Hmm. Interesting. I believe half of that. The first part, if everybody reads the same book, if everybody sees the same God, then they would all believe. It doesn't take into account the fact that as humans, we are born into sin. The fact is, if God were to appear here in Springfield, Missouri, and have a hand come down from heaven... Would that make, and with a loud voice, I am God, believe me. Do we really think that all 250,000 people in the surrounding area are automatically going to become believing Christians as a result of that? No. And why is that? Because the Bible says that people are born in rebellion against God because they do not want to believe. And all you need is a two-year-old to tell you that people do not want to do what they are told to do. And so it is with people, right? That being said, the best advertisement that we have for our Christian witness is not our website. It is not our app as much as we enjoy that. It is not our building. I'm grateful for the building. That is not our best advertisement. You know what it is? It's our new chair. It's not. <laughs> it's you. You are the best advertisement for the Lord, for this church. The life that you live, the love that you have. I've had two separate people. One was in a hospital. Another one just called to say to me, I have never in my life, and I've been involved with multiple churches, I've never seen the love that is expressed like it's expressed in your church. I said, well, it's not me, but I have to agree with you that God has done a work 
And these people are special. You have been touched by God. And God's grace is real. And here's the thing. We have issues. We have problems in the church, in families, as individuals, right? We do. But there can still be love and grace, forgiveness, more times than not. We're quick to resolve, hopefully quick to heal. It's not the absence of issues. It's that we live in a grace community and we can we can address these things and we can be open and honest that when somebody asks us how we're doing, we can say, you know what? I'm not doing too good. And if you don't want to talk about it, just say, you know what? I just don't want to talk about it today. And that's fine. And hopefully people will respect your space. But you know that there'll be people here that love and care for you. And I think that's a little of what Peter was talking about, that the best advertisement is you for who God is and the change that he can make in lives and the power of the gospel. It's like we are wearing a billboard around us. And I hope it's saying, because of the way I'm living my life, you can believe in Jesus. My experience is 95% of what I experience and minister at this church is great. The other 5%, it's just, you know, real life and things that you got to deal with and conflicts and, and all that. But let's be honest about that. Not have to hide it. It's that realness that attracts me. Not that we have smoke and mirrors in a fancy show. We purposely don't do that. You realize that? We purposely are not going to put on a high-powered thing or, or, you know, shiny programs. It's you that's the best advertisement. And I don't want to complicate it with a bunch of other stuff. So thank you for being those kind of people. I want to encourage you to strive for abstaining from the flesh. Keep, and again, I'm thinking of more than just sexual stuff, but it's about the anger and the relationships. Address those things. What, what creates pain is when we don't address it. When there's conflicts, we just let it go. We don't tell the truth to one another. That's what we have to address quickly. And when we can do that, we get to enjoy what we enjoy here. Let's pray.